This episode is sponsored by The Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving toward a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com. And this episode is sponsored by Westrock, a global leader in paper and packaging. Westrock connects people to products in ways that are responsible, right-sized, renewable, and recyclable. For more information, please visit westrock.com. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Why Nature Needs Business, a preview of Circularity 20 behind the recent GRI SASB hookup, and chemical footprinting comes of age. It's the right formula this week on 350. It's July 17th, 2020. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me fresh from her garden in Midland Park, New Jersey, it's Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. Greetings and salutations. Thank you. How's the garden doing? I know you've been spending the garden uh, your is time growing. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the garden is mostly going. I have been plagued by my my friendly neighborhood deer this year so some of our our lovely perennials have not made it uh, but the hydrangeas are quite extraordinary this year there i have bushes that have all three colors on them it's it, i'm kind of puzzled by that <laughs> but anyway you know, um, three colors on and, one bush yes wow. yes isn't that nuts um and the rose of sharon have just started blooming but yeah mostly our i've been watching um i've been pruning the uh the deer pruning <laughs> So, yeah. Eh, anyway, yeah, what about the, you? Uh, uh, my garden is good. <laughs> uh, getting ready <laughs> do to you take... have a garden? No. Well, we do, actually. <laughs> yes, you do. Uh, you, have a, we, you do in the front. We do have, yeah. a, actually, an extensive garden in the back as well, but uh, it's more my wife's uh, doing than mine. Um, I'm, a, I'm a helper and a carrier of things, mostly. But I am um, taking next week off. Going to go head up the coast of California, up to... Uh, a place called Sea Ranch. Uh, We'll spend uh, several days uh, just hanging out up there just to get out of Dodge um, and uh, literally a change of scenery. So looking forward to that. So I will uh, be off next week on this webcast. uh, I know uh, our colleague Deanna Anderson will be co-hosting with you, so that's a beautiful thing. I also know that you, this week, just to go back to the week we just uh, concluded, hosted a really interesting webcast on oceans. Do tell. Do tell. So it was a two-part. The uh, ambassador, Peter Thompson, who is the envoy on the ocean for the United Nations, uh, he was part of it, but also there were four innovators who talked a little bit about um, companies and solutions that they have to address 
the various problems that we have um, in keeping the ocean sustainable, like things like plastic waste and uh, preservation of, of trees. So if you think about it, like one of the, you know, we talk a lot about planting trees in rainforests, but what about mangroves? Um, so it was just uh, a good a good discussion about the the need for including the ocean in all of these recovery packages that we're that we're hearing come out of various countries. So um, you know they, they shouldn't be just land based solutions. We really need to pay attention to things like sustainable shipping and the fisheries, especially with the the meat shortages that have been going on. There's there's going to be more attention. And of course tourism. Um, yeah, and there's a, yeah. we had that piece this week by James Richens on the sustainable ocean economy coming out of the economy's economist intelligence unit. Uh, and it's just part of, part of this parade. I think we'll be, I know I'm interested in this and want to be writing more about this topic, the blue economy, as it's called, some of the, the business opportunities that, that go into uh, helping uh, preserve and support uh, ocean economies in a sustainable way. Really, um, really interesting stuff. But um, you know what? Well, more on that to come. Right now, let's take a deep dive into the Week in Review. So, Joel, let's start with a piece that you wrote uh, about two organizations that I have covered quite extensively in my past, GRI and SASB. And I'll get let you do the acronym honors in a moment, but it really comes down to uh, the, the perpetual conundrum of reporting and how much reporting and who to report to and so forth. But it looks like they're collaborating. Is that good news? So SASB is the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, uh, and GRI uh, is the name formerly known as the Global Reporting Initiative. And these are both organizations that have become sort of the de facto standards for not only what to report, but how to report and uh, sustainability, uh, including social and environmental information uh, globally. And, um, you know, there is this, these are just two of a whole range of, you know, the TCFD and the PRI and the IIRC and CDP. And if you don't know what those stand for, uh, look them up because it's not worth going into what all those are, but they're all different frameworks, organizations that are collecting, demanding in some cases, disclosure by companies of certain kinds of, of, of metrics. And it's very confusing for companies. And so this is a one small step for a humankind kind of thing where GRI and SASB said they're going to start collaborating in terms of how they go to the market and supporting each other rather than competing uh, as they have been for years. So it's a bit of a detente, I guess. Um, and uh, you know, and, and it's, it's that's significant. It's significant because it starts to say, you know, make first of all acknowledge that we need some harmonization, simplification of all these standards and frameworks. Um, but it's also underwhelming is that there's, it's all talk right now. It's just a communications thing, and it, it is the first step. And uh, I spoke to the two CEOs, uh, SASB CEO Janine Guyot and uh, GRI CEO Tim Moen about this. And, you know, there's some stuff that could happen that would be more significant down the line. Um, And I can only guess what those would be, you know, harmonizing their metrics, maybe uh, simplifying this verification and certification. So maybe one person can certify for both. Maybe 
years from now actually merging and sort of having one organization that does both of the kinds of things they do. But they're not talking about that, and they're not even suggesting that. And but I think that's the, on the wish list. Um, so it's a it's you know as I said one small step for reporting kind here that uh, um, we're starting to see a little bit more harmonization of some baby steps along the way, but I think it's it is significant, um, but it's not going to change anything anytime soon. But let's talk about something that is changing soon. This is a piece that I know that's near and dear for you on workplace EV, electric vehicle charging, and what uh, companies are doing around uh, bringing EV charging to the workplace. Yeah, so this essay is based on uh, some research that was done by the Presidio Graduate School and ChargePoint. And it focuses on how effective the programs have been at 24 different organizations across the United States to provide charging stations for employees. So there's there's a number of companies, um, Bank of America is one that's cited in, in this particular article uh, that have put in, you know, infrastructure in the parking lot so that you can go drive your vehicle to work um, and so forth. And so this is a this is some of the stats, I think, um, that, that would be relevant for, for this audience is number one, um, and I was looking here at the Bank of America, which I just mentioned, they saw a 50% increase in the number of electric vehicle commuters in just one year after installing the chargers. So it's like the chicken and egg thing, put the chargers in, or do they have the, the cars, you know, it's, um, you know, it, it just goes to show that that spending some time on on having a dialogue with employees is is important. And I believe, you know, we've talked a lot about the the role that businesses can play in investing in charging infrastructure for fleets, right? But you shouldn't forget your employees. Now, I guess one of the things that, that should be interesting now is with the pandemic, um, you know, what happens with commuting habits afterwards. Um, but it's it's some great it's some great uh, advice and research and data from from these two organizations that I think anyone who's thinking about this or has has um, already done this kind of investment will want to check out and, and think about you know are you energizing excuse me are you optimizing your energy in the right way are you using renewable energy and those are all covered in this particular article yeah for anyone who wants to make the case to senior uh, leadership that this is something we should be doing. Um, it, it, and it, it probably doesn't hurt in a lot of the cases that these charge stations uh, on the work on the workplace uh, site are the close-in spaces. They're often the ones that are closest to the buildings, so less to walk. God knows <laughs> right. we don't want to have to walk, uh, but mm. I, you know it does. It, they're preferential in a number of different ways, and um, and so I think that's a really great development. Uh, you know, we get so used to that here in California. I think half, at least one point, I'm not sure the statistic is still true, but half of the uh, EVs in the U.S. are in California, um, and probably a high percentage of those in, in the Bay Area where we live, uh, that it's so commonplace now to see at least one or two or maybe five or 10 charge stations it, when you go visit a company. It's just sort of de rigor now that they have to have that, that. I forget that this is not yet mainstream in the rest of the country, let alone the rest of the world. So this is exciting work that the Presidio Graduate School is doing. And of course, ChargePoint is in the business of, of creating these kinds of networks. So they are not disinterested party of this. But um, I think that's a really great development that, and this is a trend that is just going to accelerate really, really quickly. So 
How about our third story this week? Chemical footprinting comes of age. Yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a story that's been long time coming um, in terms of, of this notion of, of chemical footprinting, which is, uh, you know, how do the companies account for, uh, for, and fully even understand the chemicals that are used in their products, let alone to to uh, start to do something about reducing or eliminating the, the most problematic ones. Uh, this has been going on a long time. We have a good friend of ours, uh, Rich Liroff. He now retired, but used to write a, a column for us called The Right Chemistry. Uh, had an organization called the Investor Environmental Health Network. It's still around, IEHN.org. Uh, and they developed the first common standard uh, to inform investors and companies of the reputational, regulatory, and redesign risks. That's their three R's, reputation, regulatory, and redesign uh, of, of chemicals in their portfolios and supply chains. And so uh, so this story that we have uh, uh, ran this week uh, by uh, a contributor, Meg Wilcox, is sort of looking at, at the, where that's gone, that chemical footprint project, and how it's developed. And it looks like um, it's, as she said, making steady progress, including Levi's, Walmart, HP, are now using the chemical footprint project's annual survey to inventory and report on their, their hazardous chemical use and then their progress towards safer alternatives. Uh, I, I, you know, this is one of these things that's... <laughs> I. I have to say, this is a story in some ways that we could have run and probably did run five or ten years ago. Uh, <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, but you know, and 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 by the way, same with the SASB GRI story. Some of these stories just keep coming back, and they, you know, it's it's a they ultimately become overnight success stories that were ten years in the making. Uh, and I, you know, I'm still not seeing fully uh, how. Uh, how this becomes mainstream. But, you know, you've got companies, uh, retailers in particular, like Target, that are that are uh, pressing their suppliers to provide this information and, and so that Target and Target and Walmart have a, have a project that they've been working on together around uh, chemicals in personal care and cosmetic products. So, um, but, you know... We're seeing, as, as with so many other things, that the pandemic, COVID-19, is, is moving some of these things further faster as we started to realize some of the health impacts of, of these things. And, and, um, and the question comes, as, as, as Meg talks about here, is, is, you know, there's just 31 companies reporting their chemical footprints. Is, is this the beginning of what's going to become sort of a de facto standard, like companies now have to or, or, or should be reporting their carbon footprints? Is this the next carbon footprint? Yeah, and for me, the, the trigger point on this story was the investor angle, right? So the, the reason that this story was written was the, the, the TJX company's shareholders uh, voted on a proxy that was related to, to disclosure of the chemical footprint. And nearly 45% uh, voted in favor. It didn't pass. That's but, a lot. That's um, a very high percentage. Yeah, that's a lot of people. And so it seems like the investor, uh, it's got the investor attention, right? So we've been hearing more and more about the ESG pressures. Um, so it's it's chemical footprints now people are asking about. It's deforestation. I think that's the next big wave you're going to hear. Um, so 
it, it yeah, <laughs> many of these stories we could have written five years ago, we need to continue to write. But I, I liked that po- point of view on this one. It was like, ooh, that's a lot of companies. Yeah. Um, and, and, a and lot of investors, and and we're seeing these liability issues, you know, with the Roundup, with uh, Bayer, uh, Bayer, formerly Monsanto, and Johnson and Johnson with baby powder. They've come under fire for some ingredients in there that are you know, problematic from a health perspective. And so I think, you know, this is these continue to be front burner issues, for, particularly for uh, consumers and, and including babies who are maybe at risk here. And so we will continue to see these cropping up. Obviously, there's a whole government regulation part of this too, which is, for, suffice to say, drop the ball on these issues. But um, we're going to continue to see chemicals bubbling up for a while. I'm Deanna Anderson, Associate Editor here at GreenBiz, and I'm here with Lauren Phipps, Director and Senior Analyst for the Circular Economy, also at GreenBiz. So Circularity 20 is coming up in late August. Um, Lauren, can you share what attendees can expect from the event? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So Circularity 20 will be the second Circularity Conference. We launched the event last year, and it's really the only the first large-scale conference on accelerating the circular economy and exploring what that means within the U.S. And so the conference itself is free, so we're going to expect a lot more people than we're able to come join us in person. And the focus is really about balancing what's this big, audacious vision of what a circular economy could mean, what is the future state that we're working towards, and balancing that with, okay, how do we actually get there? So holding on to this vision, to this really positive and transformative idea of circularity, and then being really actionable in how we put that into practice. What steps can your company take? Who do you have to work with? What are the conversations you should be having? What are the questions you should be asking to move from a highly inefficient system that we have now that has a ton of waste, that has a ton of pollution and has a ton of inequity built into it. How do we move that into one that is regenerative, that decouples growth from extraction of resources in the way that we have now that paints this picture um, of a better economy? I feel like the circular economy has so many different moving parts, and I'm really excited to be a part of Circularity 20. Uh, This will be my first one. I mean, it's only the second, but um, as someone who's covering the circular economy, I'm really excited to attend the different sessions that you're having. And I'm curious if there's any sessions that you're particularly excited about that you think will make some good impact. Well, it's a good point that the circular economy means so many things. And if you just take a look at the sessions, you know, we're covering everything from packaging, how to set packaging goals and to keep up with them amid low oil prices and the spike in the need for plastics given coronavirus concerns and reusable packaging, that whole ecosystem of challenges. We're talking about challenges of design for electronics, for apparel, for business models. We're talking about, you know, is there a role for things like waste energy in a circular economy, which is a very contentious topic. We're talking about the right to repair. We're talking about so many different things. And I think if you look at the program, it could be a little bit overwhelming because it's such a mashup of subjects. 
But I think the key is to really think about what can we learn across industries and how are companies putting some of these ideas into practice? What does it look like to bring those into other industries as well? So one example, just one specific breakout that I'm excited about is on the case for durable design. If you think about, you know, all of these companies that are trying to enact new business models like rental, um, trying to have resale business models, there is a built-in case to design more durable products that can last for longer, but is there a fear of perhaps revenue cannibalization for selling products that you know are going to be obsolete more quickly? So a speaker in that session is going to be talking about luggage. They work for Samsonite. But that same theme can be applied to apparel. It can be applied to electronics. It can be applied to furniture, a zillion other products. But it's the basics of how do you create a sound business model that can translate across any industry, really. So there is a ton to cover within the event. And I'm excited to see it all come together as well. Um, so I kind of want to pull out um, and not talk about C20 in particular um, at this moment, but I'm curious about when you think about the circular economy as a whole, um, is there anything that you're paying attention to like outside of uh, durable design, which you just mentioned, that you think has some real potential to move the circular economy forward? I think the conversation is changing right now. The word of the year seems to be resilience and circularity can absolutely be a tool to build resilience into supply chains. I mean, it's unfortunate that COVID has changed the conversation for so many companies, especially for the retail industry. And it's a real shame that a, a tragedy has to kind of be the thing to, to get companies to see an opportunity in this framework. But I think that it is becoming something that uh, companies are looking to as a as a set of tools to design differently, to come back better, and to think about, okay, how do we manufacture more locally? How do we get back materials to decrease the risk and perhaps volatility in some commodity markets? How do we engage our consumers differently to make sure that we can support them during a time like this? They're huge questions. And I definitely think that um, the circular economy serves as a valuable framework to help move through some of this and hopefully not rebuild the same economy that we've had, which has been rife with so many challenges. Yeah, I feel like I've been thinking a lot about how this pandemic has really made people like kind of rethink like within the circular economy and just also in different parts <laughs> of our society. Um, so I think this time is ripe with potential for change um, in so many ways. I think those are all of my questions, but is there anything more that you feel like you want to share with Green Biz 350 listeners about Circularity 20 or just the circular economy in general? I hope that anyone listening registers for the event and joins us. It is a really different experience joining a virtual conference than an in-person one, but the ability to connect virtually is really amazing on, on the platform that we're using. So definitely encourage folks to come, to meet other folks within other industries working on this, to learn, to contribute, and to be a part of the conversation. Uh, there's going to be a fantastic lineup of speakers from 
innovative startups that you've probably never heard of to Dame Ellen MacArthur, who's kind of the biggest name in the circular economy space. So it'll be uh, inspiring and engaging and uh, hopefully impactful couple of days, August 25th through 27th, and hope everyone can join us and check it out. Thank you so much, Lauren, for coming on the show. Thanks for the invite. This week, the World Economic Forum launched a new report on the future of nature and business. The report provides a blueprint for businesses to play a leadership role in shifting our economic model to more sustainable ways. And here to talk about the report is Akansha Khatri, head of the Nature and Biodiversity Initiative at the World Economic Forum. Hi, Akansha. Hey, Joel. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, so the value of biodiversity and nature-based solutions have long been a focus of the forum uh, for a few years now. What does the re- new report add to the conversation? So for a very long time in the past few years, exactly like you said, uh, the forum has been looking at the topic of biodiversity and nature loss. Um, in the annual risks report, which the forum releases in January every year, um, for the first time this year in its 15-year history, uh, the top five risks have been identified as environmental. Biodiversity loss over the past few years really has been rising um, in its um, rank within the risk survey, which shows that uh, more and more businesses and economic actors are worried about it. Uh, however, this particular report, which is Future of Nature and Business, takes a different uh, look following from a risk, a risk framework into an opportunities framework. So through 15 systemic transitions, the report identifies that the global economy uh, could benefit with having $10.1 trillion of business uh, opportunities, as well as create 395 million jobs. So the message that we want to put forward, particularly in the current climate, is that going on a nature positive pathway can actually create more jobs as well as be good for business. So talk a little bit about the kinds of of opportunities you're seeing. And are these things that that wouldn't necessarily have happened if... uh, if companies and governments and hadn't come together to deliberately, intentionally uh, make sure they do happen? Um, so two points uh, on that. Uh, in terms of just purely looking at opportunities, let me give you one or two examples just to bring it a little to life. Um, and one of them, which is a big trend that we are increasingly seeing now, is on regenerative agriculture. For the past 60 or 70 years, uh, the world got used to Um, putting in huge numbers of uh, fertilizers and pesticides and other agriculture inputs into our soils, uh, which was useful uh, when we were only chasing yields and productivity and not paying enough attention to what do we do to our natural capital assets like the soil. Um, So the question that you are raising is uh, when we do decide to move to regenerative agriculture and all the business opportunities that are connected with it, would it have happened on its own or does it really need a push from the public and the private sector side? Um, We would argue that there is a little bit of an inertia to continue with business as usual. However, COVID-19 has really brought that inertia to a screeching halt. And it has provided us with a unique opportunity to reset the way we do business and given us a sense of urgency 
that we need to take care of our environment and the planet, and we just cannot recklessly grow uh, by extracting resources. So similarly, keeping uh, the example of regenerative agriculture alive, think of soil as an asset and not just as dust or dirt. So um, most of the um, world is today um, running out of a good quality topsoil, which is needed if we have to have uh, productive lands. Uh, moving to regenerative agriculture will actually help us um, make sure that we are for the next 100 years set right so that we can grow food in a sustainable manner. So food, uh, land and ocean use are one of the, the big areas of systems that, that need change and have opportunities. You also talked about infrastructure in the built environment and extractives and energy um, it, it feels like uh, certainly an energy that that is moving along pretty nicely in terms of the shift away from uh, the decarbonization of energy and the shift towards renewables. What do you see the opportunity there that isn't currently being tapped? So that's a really good question because um, the report does talk about that, yes, fighting climate change is important, but it is not sufficient. So the shift that we have been seeing and increasing investment in green energy uh, and renewables uh, is good for the planet, but that's not enough. When we look at how we use our land resources, it is important to be able to address what are the trade-offs we are making with any particular choice. That yes, we want to continue going forward with renewable energies, but we also want to be uh, taking care of uh, degraded lands. So the question is not just about the energy transition, but where do we choose to put our solar panels, uh, farms? Where do we choose to put wind farms, etc.? Can we actually restore degraded lands to put the wind farms or the solar farms? Um, so that would be, I think, one important transition. The second one is when we are looking at the energy uh, transition is also being able to have the right conversations between biofuels and renewables. Uh, there is a significant trend towards biofuels, but of course it requires um, chopping down trees and forests to be able to create biofuel. So the question that one needs to put forward is in our attempt to uh, follow through with the energy transition towards a um, carbon neutral, let's push the ambition forward to being carbon neutral and nature positive. So what's the World Economic Forum going to do next on this topic? How are we going to see these uh, opportunities turned into action? Uh, that's a really good question because for us, the objective was never about creating this fancy report and leave it as is. It was always meant to be a fact-based informing the work plans of our community of champions for nature. So this is a community uh, at the principal level which brings together ministers and heads of state and government, uh, business CEOs and heads of international organizations and civil society. The aim in the next year is going to be how do we focus on these three socioeconomic systems, identify what are the transitions that we can uniquely uh, propel in this very un uh, in this year, which is unprecedented, so that by the next end of next decade, which is in 2030, we have been able to halt biodiversity loss. So through the community of champions, as well as the World Economic Forum's uh, vast network of business leaders, we will be pushing this narrative of uh, carbon neutral and nature positive. So having done this report and spent a lot of time looking at these, uh, both the problems and the opportunities, did you come away feeling more hopeful? 
Absolutely, I did because um, I, I think in the at the start of the year we had um, released the report called the Nature Risk Rising, which was really looking at nature loss from a risk framework. Uh, while that is really good to get CEOs and other leaders to sit up and take notice when they understand that nature loss is material to their business, um, it doesn't really inspire or help people move towards action. And therefore, this particular report is uh, charting out opportunities that can be had if we move towards a nature positive pathway. So it's not that you are just running away from your risk. You are actually moving towards opportunities. Uh, and I do sincerely believe that humanity is capable of uh, drastic change. If anything, we've seen in the COVID time that we can mobilize resources and leadership at short notice. Uh, the report has identified that we need about $2.7 trillion of investment to realize the $10 trillion of business opportunities. While that number may seem big, just take note that in the U.S. alone, in the month of March 2020, the stimulus programs that were announced were of $2.2 trillion. So just the magnitude of things is not impossible to reach. What we need is true leadership, bold, decisive action. And thinking bigger than we've ever thought before. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, it's always great to see a solutions-oriented report, so thank you for that. Akansha Khatri is the head of Nature and Biodiversity Initiative at the World Economic Forum. You can read her article about the report on Green Biz this week. Thanks so much, Akansha. Thank you, Joel. This episode is sponsored by The Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving toward a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com. And this episode is sponsored by Westrock, a global leader in paper and packaging. Westrock connects people to products in ways that are responsible, right-sized, renewable, and recyclable. For more information, please visit westrock.com. We'll end this week's episode with a montage of highlights from interviews with the latest 30 Under 30 class, this week, we're here from Sarah Reed, Program Manager with the Electrification Coalition, Catherine Nabakalu, Project Coordinator with the DC Sustainable Energy Utility, and Ben Price. He is a Venture Manager with Saint-Gobain. Enjoy. Hi, my name is Sarah Reed, and I am a Program Manager at the Electrification Coalition. I, I am inspired by the people and, and staff, city staff and just kind of local government folks that I work with that are making a difference in, in their community. Um, and then also just motivated and, and inspired by the work that is going on at the state and local level with kind of the lack of federal leadership that we've seen. And so, and then also just have to get up and, and continue to kind of fight climate change because I do think that that is the biggest sort of threat facing my generation. And so I think it's really important that from all kinds of angles and sides and companies and nonprofits that we're working to solve that, that challenge.
I'm Catherine Abkal. I'm a project coordinator at DCSEU. For me, diversity in climate management means having different perspectives coming together. It's really the, diverse, uh, the diversity of perspectives, but also diversity of people. So I grew up in Uganda and I have an, a perspective from you know, Africa and how Africa is being impacted by climate change and their challenges, you know, the challenges in, the, in, in various countries in terms of energy access, forest loss, and how people have to basically depend on, uh, on trees for energy. But also, I've been fortunate to have an education here and seen the difference in terms of energy access and, you know, buildings, developments around, you know, cooking, what, what the priorities are in terms of the climate agenda. For instance, you're talking about solar in more industrialized nations. You're talking about more clean energy and fuel switching. Whereas in, uh, in Africa, you're talking about, okay, we, we need the trees, we need the fire. So for me, diversity is mostly, uh, it links to, what, what rings to me when diversity is said in climate is diversity of thought, first of all, uh, because you're bringing together different perspectives, different way of lives and finding a way to make it work the way it is, either by replenishing more trees or maybe fuel switching or uh, creating more cleaner energy. Either way, I feel that we're going towards the same goal. Hi, my name is Ben Price, and I'm on the Nova External Ventures team for St. Gobain. St. Gobain is a global 355-year-old materials company and one of the largest building materials manufacturers in the world. My role in, in the company is to connect the various businesses with startup companies. We focus on investing in, partnering, and supporting startups with innovative ideas and focuses on, on sustainability. I think working with large companies in the space are, is a great way to drive adoption and change. Um, and so I'm lucky to be with St. Gobain, which is a company committed towards sustainability goals and, and really a commitment um, to environmental health and, and safety across all of our, our businesses. And so I think it's, it, takes a, it takes the innovation and disruption from all these startups and the acceptance and ability to kind of jump on board from the large corporations. And, and that's what will continue to really drive change and improvements and boost energy efficiency across, across buildings. Um, and so I, I guess I see that really as the opportunity going forward. It's, it's the connection of all of these different groups. Um, so that as we talked about DCs, um, corporate venture groups, the, the companies that, that they represent and work for, as well as these innovating and disruptive startup companies. Always love to hear those young up-and-coming voices. Thank you for those, Heather. 
And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. While you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish six of them every single week. And you can go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and find out more about them. We always love to hear from you with your comments, suggestions, and tips. You can email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. As we said, I'll be off next week, but Heather will be here along with Associate Editor Deanna Anderson for another edition of Green Biz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Stay safe, and as always, thanks so much for tuning in. <music>